Good morning, I'm Dave Selvig, and this morning we're continuing our series through the book of Romans. You can follow along with the scripture reading in your Bible or on the screen. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. We're reading from Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart." By the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. As Dave said, we are continuing in our series, The Reason for Grace. And uh, the word on the street, as far as I can tell, is that I owe you a short and sweet sermon at some point, and uh, I'm going to try to make that today. Uh, We'll shoot for 25 minutes, get you out there enjoying the nice weather today. Uh, This passage has a lot of words, but the main concept is very, very, very simple. And I think this one concept will really help illuminate the whole passage. And the goal is to um, understand the main concept, which is hypocrisy, And uh, we want to nail it to the cross today. Three things. Problem, principle, and pathway. Okay, first, problem. Paul here is asking the question, are you actually qualified to judge? Now, we answer this for ourselves, yes, all day long. We are super qualified to judge on any and all matters that come before us. But he wants to actually dissect this uh, for his uh, readers or his hearers. Okay? 
And uh, he says, here's why you think you're qualified. First, you bear the name Jew. That's verse 17. So there's a brand name associated with this. You rely on the law, verse 17. You boast in God, verse 17. Know his will, verse 18. You approve the things that are essential, verse 18. You are instructed out of the law, verse 18. You are confident that you are a guide to the blind, verse 19. You are confident that you are a light to those in darkness, verse 19. You're confident you're a corrector of the foolish, verse 20. You're confident you're a teacher of the immature, that's verse 20. And last, you are confident you have the law, which is the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. Lots of reasons why we think we are qualified to judge. And then... He says, but here's why, actually, you're not qualified at all to judge. He says, you who teach others, do you teach yourselves? These are rhetorical questions he's asking. Verse 21, you who say, don't steal, do you steal? Verse 21 again, you who say, don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? That's verse 22. Do you really abhor idols? You say you hate idols. You only want to worship God. You want to honor God. But instead, do you rob temples? Right? Do you boast in the law, and yet you break the law, and you end up dishonoring God? Verse 23. Pretty straightforward, and that's most of the passage. So we got through a chunk of it already. Verse 23, 24, and 29, let me read those for us. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And here it is, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And Paul here is saying, actually, you think you're qualified to judge, but here's why you're not qualified. And what's happening is the world is fully aware of your disqualified state. They know you're not qualified to judge, and you continue to shake your finger as if anybody's listening. And so they're laughing at you, at your lack of self-awareness, at your blindness and blind spots, at your inconsistency, at your lack of integrity, at your corruption, and basically your hypocrisy. The world is fully aware, and they're making fun of you, and they're making fun of God. Everybody but you seem to know this. The whole world knows That you have no right to speak whatsoever except for you. You continue to live in your delusion and you think people are listening. You think people care. You think people respect you. You think people trust you. You think you have a hearing. But really, all you have is a hearing loss. God is blasphemed because of you. You overpromise, you underdeliver. You claim to honor God, but you're really seeking praise from men. You dishonor God and receive no praise from anyone. Not man or God. 
And your basic problem is hypocrisy. And even this claim from the world to us that we are hypocrites, we still don't hear it. We don't hear it. I think uh, it's kind of a fair argument. I think it's mostly true. I'm, an hypo- I'm a hypocrite. I think everybody is a hypocrite. I think, you know, if there's Christians here, you're welcome because you're amongst hypocrites. And if you are an unbeliever here, you're more than welcome because welcome to your own kind. I think the basic human problem is hypocrisy. It's just that, well, it's hard to be a Christian and figure out this whole hypocrisy thing. I think for me, it's really confusing how to be human and how to be light and salt, as I'm told to be. So I end up coming off like a hypocrite. It's part misunderstanding, part well-deserved. But let me share with you a principle that has been really helpful for me. So second principle. Uh, I was on the debate, I, uh, debate team in high school for a little bit. I won my first debate and then I dropped out. Uh, but such is my life story. Um, but I, I kind of remember learning about this, I think. But this is, uh, uh, the principle is called fallacious appeal to authority. That's the full name for it. It's a logical fallacy. Has anybody heard of this before? A couple of hands? Yeah. So what this is, is that there's basically three ways that we commit this logical fallacy, this fallacious appeal to authority. The first and main way is we either claim to be an authority on the subject when we're not, or we quote an authority figure, but they're not an authority on the subject matter at hand. Okay, a great example of this is asking Matt Damon, the actor, what he thinks about education. Now, Matt Damon is super passionate about education. I've seen and watched his YouTube rants about education. His mom was a teacher, and he has a lot to say. He actually travels the world trying to improve education around the world, which is all great. But who cares? It's Matt Damon. He's a great actor. I think there's an intensity about him that I like. He choreographs and, you know, acts in good fight scenes in movies. That does not make him an authority on education. That's a fallacious appeal to authority. The second main way that um, uh, we commit this logical fallacy is when there is a conflict of interest. For example... Matt Damon has made education commercials where they actually paid him to make the commercial. As soon as you start getting paid, there's a conflict of interest, and you're no longer qualified to speak on the matter, which makes it really interesting that I'm a preacher, (laughs) a professional preacher. But who cares what Matt Damon thinks? He's not an authority on the subject, and he's getting paid to talk about it. Right? Celebrity endorsements work for sure, but they commit the most atrocious logical fallacies. And this is, I think, really helpful for me in understanding what's going on here in this passage and the basic problem of hypocrisy. In Romans 1, we we listed out 21 ways plus one more way that the biblical ideal is broken. 
And then Paul says, just because you've kept one of these doesn't make you qualified to be righteous or an authority in all the other ways that you have failed. Right? In this case, just because you don't commit adultery doesn't mean you're perfect in every other way. It does not make you an authority. It does not make you a good person just because you were semi-good or mediocre in one specific area. If one part of the law is broken, then the whole law is broken. The law isn't just rules that I keep, but it's this one big whole piece. It's this ideal, this perfection. And if you taint, contaminate one little part of it, then your whole person is broken. You're a sick person. You're infected. There's something deeply wrong with you. In fact, the fact that you broke one little part of the law isn't the main problem. Do you know this? That it's not your sins that's your problem. It's your sinful nature. It's not that we're sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You have a nature that is evil. And we get into that in a couple of weeks. I mean, we really get into it. Paul, for several verses, says nothing about anything good, but just names, lists out in all the different ways that we are depraved and void of good. We sin because we're sinners. And keeping one part of the law does not create exemption for us from the rest of the law. Abhorring idols, that's great. You don't abhor idols. But do you actually love God? You don't steal from the temple? One part that is good does not make the whole part good. James chapter 2 verse 10 And 11 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. There's no uh, uh, better example for me uh, to describe this truth than in my marriage. Um, it's, it takes nothing for me to feel self-righteous over my wife. And, um, I mean, it's just, I don't know if that's a commentary about her or a commentary about me. I think it's really describing the whole system. But how often I do one dumb, stupid little thing right, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, she's not doing her job. It takes nothing. And James further goes on to say, when you are making a judgment about somebody who is, quote-unquote, breaking the law, there is no other appeal that we can make than to make ourselves the law. That is, we make ourselves the picture of perfection. James chapter 4, verse 11 says this, Do not speak against one another, brothers. He who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks against the law, And judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? 
And on top of all this, we also have the other part, the second part of our fallacious appeal to authority, where we present a conflict of interest. Remember chapter 1. You and I, we have a need to suppress our evil deeds. We choose to do evil things as a way to cover up the other evil things we have already done. We are constantly justifying ourselves and our behavior before others. A clear conflict of interest. I've been having a pretty good uh, running stretch this last month. Uh, My long run was about 17 miles. I felt pretty good after that. And then I became a teacher of running. And uh, I challenged my wife, who's never run uh, 12 miles before, to run 12 miles with me this past Friday. And uh, she was really nervous. Her adrenaline was pumping. She had been training a little bit. And uh, here we uh, dropped our kids off at babysitting, and we're running. And about 80% of the way, she smoked me. But then she had to go to the bathroom. So I caught up, and I spent the last 20% of the run making sure I stayed ahead of her just to um, save my ego. Now, I was pretty proud of myself when I uh, finished this race ahead of Susie by a couple of steps. Um, But I had to be proud of myself because I tried extra hard to be faster than her. This, This girl who was on the track team in high school, so she did have some unfair advantage. You know, she had more blood vessels. Maybe, I don't know. I gotta, I gotta build my case here. But because I barely beat her, I had a need to continually beat her. Right? And so right after, uh, right after Friday, um, it was amazing to me how extra proud I felt of my running. And all of a sudden, the fact that I ran well, relatively well, turned me into a fashion police. I don't know how that happened, but I just started criticizing the way people dress, especially runners. And I judge people who have a lot of gear, who are decked out in expensive running shoes and you know, high-tech fabrics and the whole workup, and I just think, fools. Fools, I just, I run way more than you're probably running, and I wear cotton. (laughs) It suits me fine. I'm wearing barefoot shoes with no no soles on it, just a thin piece of rubber. How superior am I than them? And it's easy. Run six miles. You will laugh at people who run five. It just happens. I don't know why. And then I turned into a food critic. I came home from that run, and I felt pretty dang entitled to a good meal. I did. And uh, Susie and I, we've been making yogurt, thanks to um, uh, Kevin and Linda's uh, encouragement about it. And it's delicious. But that day, it wasn't good enough. Not quite. And then I realized, and really I can trace this back to my running and beating Susie just by a hair, that I began to judge the whole of people's lives. They just look like, you all just look like your lives are not in as much order as mine. No, seriously, get your act together. (laughs) Why am I qualified to say I'm not? But I ran 12 miles on Friday, 
And that's stupid and that's pathetic. But that one little keeping up some arbitrary law that I created for myself in my mind is connected to perfection. Therefore, I am perfect. Therefore, I am qualified to speak to you and judge you and think less of you. How easily I slip on that slope. Christians, your Christianity is not about your obedience or goodness. And your obedience in some small little area does not qualify you to judge or to hate or to boast. It's as simple as that. And when you do, all you're doing is committing a fallacious appeal to authority. It's a logical fallacy. Non-Christians, if there are non-Christians here, your atheism does not mean you're a better thinker or you're more rational or logical or scientific than a Christian. Just because you have some defeater argument in your brain does not mean that you fully understand the life of faith and what Christianity is about. Drink the Kool-Aid. Taste it. It's sweet. It's delicious. Lastly, pathway. Now, Paul talks a lot about circumcision in the second uh, or the third, bottom third of this passage. And he's basically saying that circumcision should be an outward label and sign of an inward reality. If circumcision, which is physical, is not just an outward sign and label of what's real, actual reality on the inside, then, he says, it stinks. It stinks and it becomes worse than meaningless. It actually makes you look not neutral, but bad. So it doesn't just negate your faith. It just makes you look like a horrible person. You're worse off if you're circumcised and you boast in it and you rely on it but you're actually breaking the very spirit of what that circumcision is supposed to stand for. A true name or a true label is descriptive of what's inside. And the word inside there is the word secret. What's secret of the heart and it's by the spirit. And the only person and the first person and the last person that should recognize that is God. The praise is from God. And the word praise there is the word acknowledgement or just recognition. In verse 27, there's a curious word there. Uh, It's the English word that's translated keep or keeps in the Bible. But verse 27 is the Greek word teleos. And it's the Bible's word for perfect. It's the Bible's word literally translated to be complete. What if there is a way to complete the law? What if there is a way to be perfect, to have this perfect standard over us, but it's perfectly met, it's fulfilled, and and it won't lead to judgment? It's not going to make you a jerk. It's not going to make you a critic of everyone else all around you. And it's not going to cause you to live for the praise of man. You don't have to bring your record before each other. And 
It's going to turn you into a really winsome and humble and attractive person who's not having to hint at or go fishing for compliments or wave some banner in some way. What if there is a way to do that? I want to read a, a, a few verses here out of the book of John. This really spoke to me. John chapter 13, verse 1 through 16. I'm going to read it. Follow along if you like. Close your eyes if that's more helpful to you. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had not put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, Do you not realize now what I am doing? You do not realize what I'm doing now, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never Wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, because he does not learn, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. There's two things I want to point out in this passage. First, you notice the relationship between the part and the whole. Peter says, Lord, you can't wash me. Don't wash my feet. You are my master. You're my teacher. A student should be washing the teacher's feet, not the teacher, the students. And then Jesus says, you don't understand, Peter. If I don't wash you, you're dead. And Peter says, oh, okay, okay, then wash my whole body. And then Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, I've already washed you. You've already had a full bath. I just need to wash your feet now. See, I think I, I reach for this banner of perfection over my life because I don't realize I have been washed. And all I need is to have my feet washed. I've already been cleansed. The law has been fulfilled. I no longer need to reach to grasp at this perfection, this law. That's not my business anymore. Jesus fulfilled the law. And look what he ends with in this passage. 
You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Why do I have to be the teacher? I don't have to be the teacher anymore. Jesus is our teacher. And having fulfilled the law, what does he teach? What is the message? What does he preach? Does he present himself as great and mighty as somebody? No, he washes our feet. When you have truly fulfilled the law, it actually humbles you. It does not make you more arrogant. Your judgmentalism, your arrogance is a sign to you and a piece of evidence that you are sorely lacking. You're compensating. Because Jesus, who is the true teacher, who fulfills the law, his response is to wash us, to wash our feet. Jesus is the teacher that you and I could never be. We never should be. Jesus fulfills all of the law. And what he teaches is to wash feet. There's two application points I would like to end with. The first is this. I would like you to look back on your life. All the memories that you have, all the stories, all your successes, all your failures, mistakes, surprises, the curveballs of life, tragedies, missed opportunities, friendships gained and lost. Think about all of that. That's your story. That's your whole story. It's messy. It's not clean. You're not a good person. And that's okay. I want to invite you to look back on your life and conclude that it's grace that carried you, that it was God's sovereignty. When you look back, you see that God was at work, that he was the great orchestrator, that mostly you got lucky. It wasn't your works. It wasn't your effort. It wasn't diligence. It wasn't planning or competence or your even good looks. But it was God. Can you honestly look back on your life and not conclude that way? See, for me, when I'm in the present, when I'm looking at myself, I can be judgmental towards myself. I can be proud of myself. I can be anxious about my life. I can worry about the future. But as soon as I look back, I see God at work. I see that he was sovereign. I see that he's redemptive. You know what that's called? That's called hindsight bias. If you're a financial investor, you know this. This is a a real term. It means that when you look back, everything is crazy clear. Yeah, you should have known. Yeah, you should have bought, you should have sold. Yep, makes sense. Now. But when you're looking Forward, when you're in the present, you know what we do instead? We do this other thing called anchoring. This is my story. I'm sticking to it. I'm not selling. I'm going to. That's another financial term anchoring. And it's completely nonsensical. Look back and even retroactively praise God, trust Him, see that He is worthy. The second point of application is baptism. 
Paul here talks a lot about circumcision. I think maybe a Christian equivalent to that might be baptism. And uh, my theology on baptism has gone up and down, backwards and forwards. And I'm not exactly clear on where I am, but here's one thing I do know. Baptism itself is not salvific. Baptism never is the vehicle through which you are saved. You are saved by your faith in God's grace. That's how salvation happens. When you are able to look back and see that it was God, and you take that and you look forward and you trust God for the future. That's called salvation. That's a Christian. That's the whole thing. Nothing more, nothing less. But baptism comes along and says, you don't do baptism. It's not something that you do. You don't have it. You don't possess it. You receive baptism. It's the acknowledgement, the outward symbol of the inward reality of the work of the sovereign God in your life. It's you saying to God, amen. So be it. And you receive baptism. And so some people say, well, I got baptized when I was a kid, but it didn't mean much, so I want to be baptized again. My initial response is no. You can't be, because the reason you're saying that is because now you think you have control. Now you think you're good enough. Now you think your will is cooperating enough. And I say no. God has been working in your life and has worked through that initial baptism. Because it's always been about the sovereignty of God in your life, not about your volition. And you receive the sovereign work of God, the gracious work of God in your life. And so I was baptized as a Presbyterian, sprinkled no less. I wish I could have been dunked. And I had no idea what being a Christian was, but I will not be baptized again. Because if I do, I fear that I might be trusting in myself. And how do I know when I'm not going to change my mind again? Surely I'm capable of changing my mind. But not the course of God's work in my life. So we are going to do baptisms this summer or fall. We are struggling with when to do dates. We might have to actually bring in a baptismal in here. We've been looking into those feeding troughs, those galvanized steel ones. And so we might have to do that. But I would love, and this is a number that I saw for some weird reason because of what I had for lunch and also because I was praying, is the number 30. I would love to see 30 people be baptized this year. And there's some of you in this room who have never been baptized. And you think, I'm a Christian. God loves me. I, what do I have to be baptized for? I'm telling you, you should be baptized. It's a public declaration of the inward reality of God's work in your life. And it's powerful. Julie's working on dates. Receive your baptism of the heart and then of water. Would you bow your head with, heads with me? Father, thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you that you don't leave me to my own devices. Thank you that you humbled me this morning by letting me know that Rachel, the singer in the worship band, ran a marathon yesterday at three hours and 40 minutes, and I've never even broken five hours. Thank you that there's reason for humility and uh, gratefulness all around us if we would only see it. I pray that we would not make ourselves the law, that we would take our humble place as your children and allow you to be the judge.
For you alone are qualified. You alone are worthy of our worship. Father, we give ourselves to you as you have given yourself to us. You have cleansed us and you continually wash our feet. You serve us. You give to us and we receive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.